I'm going to need a little bit of help. You'll know where I'm going here in a minute. Sunny day, sweeping the clouds away, on my way to where the air is. Can you, clear? Who said that? On, is it clear? I thought it was sweet. Can you tell me how to get? It didn't take much for you to recognize what I was saying, did it? I bet you don't even know how many times you've heard it. Especially if you're a parent and had it on. But it was enough for you to finish my sentence when I gave you the signal, wasn't it? Our memories are powerful things. We engage the world with all of our senses. And some people remember best what they see, some what they hear, some what they smell, some what they taste, and some what they touch. I tend to remember best things that I've heard. And I discovered this in college, actually. Um, I would read a book or have that very dense theological reading to do, and I would get through it and go, I don't even know what I just read. But then I could sit through a lecture or I could sit through a conversation and verbatim tell you exactly everything that happened bullet by bullet. It's just how I'm wired, I guess. Now, it's only recently in school uh, where things have been set up for people who have multiple learning styles. Church curriculums have recently figured this out too, which is one of the reasons why I'm so grateful that we use orange the way that we do. They embrace that. But I bet I would have gotten better scores if I had been tested in the manner to which I learned the best. Or at least if I was able to test by talking about what I heard. I discovered this in speech class in college, which they made everybody take. And I discovered something about myself that I am particularly fond of words. Not just any words, but complex words. Like super interesting phrases. And you'll hear me butcher the English language from time to time to squeeze them in. And I regularly... We'll try this with people. And sometimes it lands well. And sometimes I get a, like one of those. So here are some of the words. I want you to be thinking about whatever these words are for you. But here are some of the words that I have tried to squeeze in and use in conversations. The first one is ubiquitous. Do you guys know what ubiquitous means? It means complicated. How about ergo? How about kerfluffle? How about nomenclature? How about hitherto therefore? I will write these. I used to write these things in my papers to see if the teachers were actually reading them. And the ever elusive and my absolute favorite, 
cornucopia. Now that has to do with Thanksgiving largely, but the idea of cornucopia is the horn of plenty, the horn of blessing. All of these are over the top. But back when they were invoked, they weren't. They were part of the common vernacular. And if you have one of these some such words, I want you to turn to your neighbor right now and give them your word du jour. The one that if you could squeeze it into a conversation, that you would. You turn to your neighbor, go right ahead. I need, I need two examples. If you think you have the best one, raise your hand. Your neighbor, what, okay, Chrissy, what'd your neighbor say? Well, what did Sean say? Behooved, I love it. I need another one from the peanut gallery. Onomatopoeia? Yes! <laughs> so words can be elusive. And whenever you're looking at the Bible, you have to remember that the language of origin is not English. It's the receptor language in a lot of cases. And so we're going to, we're going to, you'll, you'll see things in English that are the best effort to get at what it was in the original. That's why we have so many translations. People are so intent on finding the right words to say. So this morning, Psalm 23, you've seen it at Dollar Tree. You've seen it at your grandmother's house on the, on the painting on the wall. You've, you've heard, Lord is my shepherd, green pastures, the whole thing. But I'm going to submit to you today that we're too familiar with it. We're so familiar with it that we actually miss what it's really about. We're so familiar with it that we put it in the bulletin when there's a funeral. Because we use it as a comfort psalm. Just like the one where it talks about the cord of three strands is in every single wedding liturgy. I'm going to draw some things to our attention that we might miss in the first pass. And I'm a stickler for words if you haven't figured it out and especially the meanings of words. I spend a lot of time carefully saying what I say. How words are put together, how they're arranged, the context that they fit in, the time of day, who you're speaking to, when you're speaking, is it cloudy outside when you're speaking? All of it matters. And I'm just as much a stickler for what the Bible says as what it doesn't say. You catch that? And I'm always looking at both. Now this morning we are going to look at this Psalm 23. And we're going to ask God to help us hear it new today. Let's pray. God, when we come to familiar territory, give us new vision. 
Give us a greater depth for understanding. Give us a abundant exercise in hearing your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, open it up to Psalm 23. As you remember, the last time I talked, we, the, the book of Psalms is basically not just one book, but five books. And <clears throat> the first book goes from chapters 1 through 41. And I was at 40 last time, and we're going to go backwards to 23. So David steps up to the mic and says the following. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We go straight to the shall not want. Let's look at the Lord is my shepherd. Anytime you read the scriptures and see the word Lord in all capital letters, it should fire off in your brain that we are to understand that this is the sacred four-letter name of God. Y-H-W-H. You might have heard it said Yahweh. And in Hebrew, what's interesting is they don't actually say that. They don't say his name at all. Because it is so sacred, you just don't say it. So the fact that we're reading it we miss the fact that if this were being spoken, David might go like this. Is my shepherd. And this is not a foreign thing because a lot of people understood that this YHWH, if you, if you kind of put your hand on your chest and say, Y-H-W-H or Yahweh, you're going to breathe in and out. Yahweh. Or if you just say the letters, it's Yod, Hey, breathing out. Wah, Hey. Kind of mimics the pattern of breathing. Even God's name is on our lips. But it's so sacred that he just doesn't say it. And so they went on to use other names like Adonai, Jehovah, all those different things. Because some things are just so amazing that you just can't put words to them. So David, who is by very nature an experienced shepherd at this point, says this. That Y-H-W-H is his personal shepherd. The king is a shepherd. And this is not foreign to that mind either because kings back then definitely had those types of qualities. The good ones anyways. If I were to put the job descriptions of a king or a shepherd up on a whiteboard, you'd be hard-pressed to know who is who in a lot of places. Because the job of the king was to lead and care for his people. Sounds like a shepherd. Leading sheep, 
caring for sheep. So for David to bring these two ideas into one space, he's just trying to let us know how amazing God is. And it's interesting what he says next. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And we can skip right past this part and go, well, of course. What else is God going to do if he's the king shepherd? Or we can understand what he really means by this. He's saying that his shepherd isn't just any other shepherd. He's not a poor bottom-of-the-barrel kind of fellow. His shepherd has access to abundance. And not just any, the ridiculous kind. The lavish kind. And as you may recall, being a shepherd was not by any means a prestigious profession. It was as reviled as the tax collector. They smelled bad too. But not this shepherd. He has season stealer tickets. He's bona fide. Having this king as your shepherd means you want for nothing. Having this shepherd means you are lakeside. Also, you have to understand how important the word green is in the Sesame Street fashion. What's the color of the day? Green. Do you remember the kind of topography that is associated with this part of the world? It's not green. So this is further meant to capture the audience's attention. To exclaim that not only in a place where it's not green, this shepherd has access to green. Because kings almost always get the best locations. So David saying this, that his shepherd has access and that he gives it to him. Y'all ain't hearing me. He goes one step further. Being led in a path of righteousness can mean a bunch of things. It could mean that there is plenty. It could mean that there is danger up ahead. We all want to keep the picture of this green grass and this still water, but what about the valley? He doesn't stay in the green grass. He doesn't stay by the water. He goes on a path of righteousness through a valley. And why would a good shepherd lead his sheep through a dark valley? Even one where there could be peril. So wait a minute. You might be saying, hey, Dan, I'm on board with the shepherd king thing and the green, but you're losing me now on this path of righteousness thing. But what we need to know is that the path is purposeful. 
We go from what it means to walk along the still waters and having a soul that is refreshed to needing those very things to sustain us through the drought. Through the trouble and the mess and the strife and the famine and the pain. The key here is to remember that the shepherd is with the sheep the entire time. The good and the bad. The next piece of imagery is also another place where it might be hard to differentiate between a king and a shepherd. David mentions that he is led by a rod and a staff. The imagery of the rod and the staff are absolutely key here. I want you to catch this. Because this is where the, where the place where the shepherd metaphor is dri driven home. No other profession identified with these objects. They are owned and wielded by a shepherd and a shepherd alone. Understanding that these were both simultaneously weapons, an instrument of love and care, should give us an even grander picture of what it means to go through the valley, being led on a path of righteousness because the shepherd leads us to where we need to go. And that sometimes means that the terrain to get there can be rough or treacherous. From here now, we have a slide back to something more kingly. That the Lord would prepare a table before him in the presence of his enemies. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not somebody who would think to set up a table in the presence of my enemies. Even my farmer's market table. And David had many adversaries, but in the presence of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, seated at his table, they posed no threat because David had what was called guest rights with the Lord. And in the ancient Near East, a host was obligated to safeguard his visitors from all enemies at all costs. It's like he had been checked into the continental. Doubling down even further, he says that you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. To have your head anointed with oil was equivocated in a lot of places in the scriptures to be a symbol of joy. It was a deep picture of blessing. You don't just anoint anyone's head with oil, you know, just for funsies. You don't do that. David recognized that his standing was not merely that of a short-term visitor who could be entertained once in a while then sent on his way, but, or that he would be invited to return occasionally. David rejoiced that he had been granted a high honor 
at a perpetual place, setting at the Lord's banquet table. David imagines himself sitting at the Lord's banquet table while his adversaries gather all around. Being in God's presence rejuvenated David, giving him the strength to face all the challenges and pressures of life. His enemies could snarl, they could roar. All they wanted. But in the shelter of God's presence, David would feast and be refreshed. We call this vacation. The place where the world seems to disappear if only for a few days. So I have a question. Have you ever felt this degree of abundance? I'm not talking about the fast pass at Disney. I'm talking about when being with God is more than enough. And that everything else simply disappears. And when was the last time your cup overflowed? I love the picture of the overflowing cup. Now, what you put in your cup is your business. But if you're wondering what's in mine, it's Cheerween. The blessed nectar of Salisbury, North Carolina. If you ever wanted to know what to get me if you travel down south, there isn't much more that I could endeavor to ask then you'd bring back a tall glass bottle of that fizz-tasticness. But seriously, when was the last time your cup overflowed? And when was the last time your cup overflowed and filled up the cups of those who are around you? You might have heard it said, we are blessed to be a blessing. And this is an image I want you to tie to this sentence, this overflow. That the overflow of your life is designed to affect those near you. You're not the only one sitting at the banquet table. The access that you have to the king shepherd should overflow to those around you. What it might look like, sorry, what might it look like if you purposefully looked for opportunities to spill out onto others what is being poured into you. And then here's the part I want to focus in on the most. He says, surely, we sang this at the opener, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all, of, all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a summary statement. Because of everything that he has set up until this point, it all leads to here. You see, the overflow was the goodness. The overflow was the mercy. David knew how much he needed both and where it was coming from. It was coming from the king shepherd's house. Let's not get so tied up in the imagery about the shepherd that we forget that he is king. And the only way that David can speak about this abundance, this overflow, was to use the language that he had at his disposal. 
So as you know, I'm a fan of films. I took a class in college about being able to discern what is happening in media. Needless to say, it wrecked movies for me for a long time. But what was interesting was as much as I was able to see all the bad things, I got really good at seeing God working there anyways. It's interesting, in the most unlikely places, media can be a place where Jesus is speaking. Songs that might seem like they mean one thing, if you listen to them carefully and hear them with ears to hear, you might be hearing God say something else. From now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. From now on, what waited for tomorrow starts tonight. Tonight. Let this promise in me start like an anthem in my heart. From now on. From now on. And even more importantly, and we will come back home. We will come back home again. I've been struck by this song for all kinds of reasons. But now it's, it's tied in my mind to Psalm 23 forever. You see, David knows it down in his bones. And he's using the best words that he can to describe the seed of eternity that's been placed in his heart. He knows. He knows the best places to be in the presence of. He knows abundance. The protection, the provision, the opulence, the goodness, the mercy. He uses what he knows to communicate a truth so big, his words only hint at it. To dwell in the house of the Lord, there is nothing better. There's nothing like home. There's no place like home. You see, friends, abundance only gets at this idea a little bit. The word doesn't actually do this justice at all. None of the words that I have said up here so far do this justice either. Because what they mean together is so much bigger than what we're saying. We're talking about eternity here. The unfathomable everlasting. How can we talk about eternity in any coherent way at all? I think a good place to start might be saying from now on. So from now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. Chasing things that don't ultimately matter. 
no longer going after the false abundance that this world has to offer, and being filled to the point of overflowing at the king's table. Take your seat because it was purchased at the greatest price. From now on, what's, what waited until tomorrow starts tonight. Living like eternity is happening now because it is. You are not guaranteed tomorrow, but you are here now. And now. And now. And now. And now. What better way to honor the king than to live an overflowing life? This is your chief end as a created being, by the way. And every week, you can come to this table But when was the last time somebody out there got spilled on? Let's pray. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our heads with oil and our cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <laughs>